like other people, thieves, rogues, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all my income. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even look up to heaven, but was beating his breast and saying, God be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his home justified rather than the other. The word of the Lord. Take a moment now for silent reflection. Let us pray. Gracious God, we ask that you would meet us here now. Help us to believe that you have arranged this moment. Help us to believe that you have something you want us to hear, to trust, to surrender to, to be comforted by, to be pushed and challenged. Help us to be open to that, whatever it may be. And help us to believe that you see us and you know us in all of our complexity, in all of our contradiction, in all of our beauty, in all of our fragmentation. And your response is always to move towards us in restoring, renewing, and redeeming love. Help us to believe that today. Help us to catch just a glimpse of your gaze of love that is constantly upon each and every person in this room that it might give us new oxygen, new ways of understanding the depth of your love for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So what a parable, huh? I heard snickers a little bit, especially when that part about, um, you know, I'm glad I'm not like those people. You know, this parable uh, is, a, parables in general, be honest with you, they're not easy to preach. They're not designed to be easy to preach. They're designed to be a little puzzling. And, and so you have to work a little harder when you're, when you're preaching on parables. This one seems like a layup, doesn't it? I mean, easy to interpret. Beware those easy to interpret parables. I'm just telling you. There's more than meets the eye there. Because this parable seems easy, right? Bad guy, Pharisee. Good guy, tax collector. Don't be like bad guy. Be like good guy. But as Amy Jill Levine, um, a Jewish New Testament scholar at Vanderbilt Divinity School, says in her book on the parables, Short Stories by Jesus, we don't really understand the Pharisees properly, basically. She says, for many Christian readers, the Pharisee, the one who in his own context would be seen as righteous and respected, is a negative figure wallowing in hypocritical sanctimoniousness. Conversely, the tax collector, the sinful collaborationist, is the justified hero. For the majority of Jesus' Jewish audience, the Pharisees would have been deeply would have been respected teachers, those who walked the walk as well as talked the talk. So, right out of the gate, I just want to say, I've had to learn to be more careful in using the word pharisaical to describe hypocrisy, because my Jewish friends tell me this reinforces anti-Semitism. Rabbi Daniel Rutenberg comments, a Christian telling someone they stink because they're being a Pharisee has the added bonus of potentially insulting a Pharisee, Jesus, they hope to emulate. Because Jesus was one as well. He was a part of that group. So we might say that this particular Pharisee was a fake Pharisee, was not indicative of what every Pharisee was like. And then there's the tax collector. Collecting taxes for the Roman government was probably the most exploitive and lucrative job any first century Jew could have. 
you know, something like working as a front man for the mafia. And so that being said, let's look at this parable. Two men, a Pharisee and a tax collector. What are their similarities? What are their differences? And what can we learn from it? First of all, similarities. The first similarity is pretty obvious. Both people are praying. Both people are praying. What would strike the original audience was that the Pharisee is praying in such a self-righteous manner and that the tax collector is praying at all. That would be the big shock. And the Pharisee gives a, you know, it's an embarrassing prayer. We joke about it and can laugh about it because it's, it's awful. He kind of does his personal progress support to God. I thank you that I'm not like other people. Bad start. Thieves, rogues, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Not I thank you for what you've done for me, um, but instead he involves himself in comparison. Comparison is always the great robber of joy and such a waste of time. And it betrays a prideful heart. He then appears to kind of humble brag. Do you notice that? I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all my income, to which I say may his tribe increase, ladies and gentlemen. (laughs) See what I did there? Nice, huh? It's advanced pastoral experience you just had. Good idea to fast twice, but the tenth of the income, that's a, what a great example for all of us. The tax collector just prays, thank you for indulging me, God be merciful to me, a sinner. That's the prayer. That's the whole prayer. No comparison, just addresses God dependent on God's mercy. His prayer, and this is something Luke does a lot in some of the other parables, look for it. His, when he talks about prayer, his prayer is deeply reliant on the, on the character of God. He's basing the whole prayer. He's, basing, he's banking his life on the character of God. And the Pharisee's prayer is focused on the Pharisee's own character. So that's the first thing. Both people are praying. Both are people in the temple. This is the only story Jesus told that is set in a place of worship, which means that our gatherings will always have Pharisees and tax collectors. They will always have both. I'd argue that you might be one this week and the other the next week. We facilitate, we facilitate between looking at ourselves and our performance and seeing how ridiculous that is and looking only to the mercy of God. So where do you find yourself today? Let's keep pushing. Maybe you'll, maybe you'll see yourself in this story in different ways as we go along. Maybe it's both people. And the third thing is, is that both are praying, they're in the temple, and both are sinners. Both are sinners. Be merciful to me, a sinner. Sinners. Now, let's look at that word, because I know it triggers people. Nobody really likes the word. We associate it with shame. I mean, who, who today said, boy, I hope one thing happens today. I hope Fred does a long sermon on sin. That'd be awesome. We associate it with shame or guilt or maybe an abusive background in the churches you were raised in or some other religious setting. And maybe you associate with kind of fire and brimstone, self-punishment, frightening us instead of drawing us closer to God. But thing is, Jesus insists on the word. So let's reclaim it from its misuse because it tells the truth. Something I, I said in the prayer today, and if you've been coming here before, you know I say it almost every single time I pray before I preach. Help us to see, Lord, and believe that you see us, you know us, 
You see us in all of our, you can all probably repeat the phrases, I said them so many times. You see us in all of our beauty and in all of our fragmentation. You see us in all that makes up who we are, all of our contradictions, because it does tell the truth. Sin tells the truth that you're a beautiful mess, that I am a beautiful mess, made in God's image, but also mired in human brokenness, in, 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 in my, my limitedness, my, my being damaged, the sin that's been placed on me and what it's done a number on my life. So saying this out loud allows for honest confession that heals and cleanses. One of my favorite commentators, Debbie Thomas, who I feel like I'm quoting practically weekly, she said, sin is a refusal to become fully human. It's anything that interferes with the opening up of my whole heart to God, to others, to creation, to myself. Sin is estrangement, disconnection, sterility, disharmony. It's the slow accumulation of dust choking the heart. It's the sludge that slows me down, that says, quit, stop walking, lie down. Change is impossible. Sin is apathy, carelessness, a frightened resistance to an engaged life. That's a great line. Sin is the opposite of creativity, the opposite of abundance, the opposite of coherence, the opposite of flourishing. It is a walking death. My life, my life precious to God, dying. Now, she's applying it in a very individual way but it's also larger than the individual. It's a brokenness in all of our systems and structures that dehumanize and oppress all God's good creation. This is why Jesus called His work the renewal of all things. That's, that's how Jesus described His mission, the renewal of all things, because all things need renewing. So let's just say this, our country was founded in genocide, slavery, and white supremacy. That's not critical race theory, that's history. That's history. Naming that is not a threat to our faith and our country. It is a pathway to liberation, a pathway to freedom. A path America so far has been unwilling to take. It's honestly about the most Christian thing a person could call for. It is part of the heavy burdens that Jesus talks about that he wants to give us rest from. Dante Stewart was not only a great wide receiver at the University of Tennessee and the New England Patriots, he's now become quite the theologian and writer. And he's now a student at Candler Theological Seminary. He writes this, There's a problem when those who are in control of the education of our children believe teaching about racism and white supremacy is actually more harmful than racism and white supremacy. And he goes on to say they would rather live in lies than be free. See, this, friends, is what makes the 4th of July so complicated for our friends who are persons of color. This history, this not naming it, I think this is partly what the writers of Scripture mean when they talk about things like principalities and powers. Systemic and structural oppression must be named and revealed for how deeply embedded it is in our systems, relationships, and lives, just like it needs to be named in our own personal behavior and the things that, in ways that we live, so that we can be free, so we can be liberated. so that others can be liberated, so the world can be renewed. 
See, it's all connected to the mission of Jesus. So, both are praying, both are in church, both are sinners. Where do you see yourself in these two people so far? Now, let's talk about their differences. And they're pretty obvious. I'm going to call the first difference comfort versus conviction. Comfort versus conviction. It's, 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 it, is it wrong to be comfortable in the temple? Is it wrong to be comfortable in church? Well, yes and no. Yes and no. I mean, gathering together about made me cry last week with tears of joy. I mean, come on. It's incredibly. We need to be with one another. If there's one thing we have learned in the last year and a half, it's how much we need each other. Right? I mean, my goodness, that's a great lesson. A lot of us learned how to walk, too, but that's another story. Um, that'd be me. Church should be comfortable, but it also should offer challenge. To live into the way of Jesus requires inventory. Inventory requires discomfort with the way things are in my life in this world that break God's heart. To stand with God in that. So when we gather, it should be both comfortable, but it should also be very much a challenging time. The Pharisee's comfort is rooted in comparing himself to others, not necessarily in being the recipient of the mercy of God. And the tax collector knows that the path to comfort is actually through the gateway of uncomfortable truth-telling about himself. So comfort versus conviction. Second difference is preening versus weeping. Preening versus weeping, the prayers, as I've already said, one prayer is done on the basis of the character of God, the other on one's own character. And look what the prayer of comparison means for the Pharisee. Focused on himself in relation to others as the Pharisee avoiding, has the Pharisee avoiding his own broken inner life. If we see prayer as part of the way in which we cultivate the inner journey Look at the brokenness of his inner journey when he's praying prayers like this. Bypassing his heart by policing uh, our outer boundaries instead. Deciding who's in and who's out. You know, some of you are here today and are joining us online and you're courageous enough to be here. Courageous enough to try church on again after being treated in this exact way. You were told you were out, perhaps. And while I sure like the tax collector's prayer a lot more than the Pharisees, it can't be the only thing the tax collector prays. Think about that for a second. If the sense of unworthiness invaded and dominated all his thoughts and self-perception for the rest of his life, then he's probably the last person with whom we'd want to identify. Because there comes a time when we need to trust that we are forgiven and accept divine grace to move beyond regret and remorse and acknowledgement of our sins into the arena of sanctification, of growing in our, our identity as God's beloved children, being blessed to be a blessing to others, joining Jesus in repairing the world. We have to move from God be merciful to me a sinner to what 1 Corinthians 15.10 says, by the grace of God I am what I am, and His grace toward me has not been in vain. 
So I guess the question is, are you stuck in the God be merciful to me, a sinner prayer? I know we need to pray it every day. Don't get me wrong. I know it's, it should be perhaps a daily prayer for all of us. Many Christians make that prayer their prayer each day. We'll pray it some at the end of this service as well. But it can't be our only prayer and posture toward God. That's my point. It can't be the only thing. This is why whenever we do the prayer confession at City Church, some, some traditions call it absolution, others call it words of encouragement, we call it words of encouragement. We do that so that you can hear, after you have said, God be merciful to me, a sinner, in all the various ways we do it each week, you can hear, yes, your sins are forgiven. And it's on that basis that we go out into the world to be the presence of God to this world, to love, to serve, and to join Jesus in co-suffering love for all that God has made. So, third similarity or difference I'm seeing is arrogance versus humility. It's pretty easy to see that in this parable. That's why it looks like a layup, right? And here's where I think it gets tricky. It's not easy to see it in ourselves. We, I'll bet you that a lot of times I've asked you, who do you identify with in this sermon? You're leaning towards the tax collector each time I ask you that. And I understand why. But this arrogance that he displays is very sneaky. It's rooted in a sense, are you ready? Of good behavior. Of being right. If you have any familiarity with the Enneagram, Enneagram 1s, beware of what I'm about to say. <laughs> the fact is, the Pharisee's life is actually exemplary. And the tax collector's life is regrettable. Regrettable. The Pharisee isn't out there exploiting a colonized people by collaborating with empire on the oppression of his own people. He's doing good deeds. He's well-respected as someone who is for the people. He's tithing on everything he owns. Always a good thing. But alas, his religious narcissism was a form of spiritual self-justification. Let's be honest. We traffic in self-justification all the time. We'll invoke almost anything to justify ourselves, especially as we compare ourselves to others. Intelligence, sharing our GPA and our SAT scores, alma maters, that's where I went to school 30 years ago. I mean, I have to constantly keep myself from bragging about going to the University of Florida. <laughs> why are you laughing, Wangi? I don't understand why you're laughing. Money, Family, great kids. My kid's an honor student. Fitness, I'm in shape. You're a slob. Politics, my vote's enlightened. Yours is ideological. And work, I work at this place. Where do you do? I mean, we do this all the time. A common form of self-justification invokes even like your zip code or your area code. Where do you live? A transparent insinuation that net worth equals self-worth. Name dropping, that's a big one. Look who I know and that you don't know. But the Pharisee was doing a lot of things right. See, there's the rub. Like Paul describes himself in the book of Philippians that he was faultless 
according to the law. And being faultless made Paul a murderous zealot. And it has made this particular Pharisee an arrogant jerk. It's good to be right about things, but it's also something humans can barely handle. Right? I can relate. I'll just speak for me. I've spent way too much time comparing myself over my lifetime to others. Comparing myself, my job, our church to others. It fosters arrogance, not humility or gratitude. That's the sneaky part of this parable. The parable tells us that doing good work can lead to trading in our own growth in compassion and empathy if we aren't careful and a dead prayer life. Practices like twice-weekly fasting and tithing that were originally designed to be emancipatory in our lives can become means of oppression, judgment, and exclusion. The outer work must always be accompanied by the inner work. The outer work must always be accompanied by the inner work. Sorry, so what can we learn? We've looked at similarities and differences. Let's land this plane here a little bit. What can we learn? Well, the first thing that came to mind when I was writing this sermon is God's unlimited generosity is really irritating. It's really irritating, if we're honest. I'm going to steal from Nadia Bowles-Weber here on her sermon on this when she says that the Pharisees' prayer for us today is this. I thank you, God, that I'm not like others, thieves, rogues, and adulterers, people who don't recycle. I thank you, God, that I'm not like those people who don't volunteer at church. Thank you that I always remember to bring my reusable grocery bags to the Whole Foods or Rainbow Co-op or wherever. I've replaced all my incandescents with compact fluorescents, and I have a rainbow flag sticker on my Prius. Thank you, Jesus. Well, that's uncomfortable, she says, especially if the other guy, the tax collector, the one who's a traitor to his people, the one who's totally the 1%, who hoards wealth at the expense of others, the one who litters and tells racist jokes and buys overpackaged goods and has gun racks and vulgar mud flaps on his truck, prays simply, God have mercy on me, a sinner. I wish I could write that well. That's <laughs> so good. The guy who did everything right and bragged about it goes home unjustified. The guy who does everything wrong and is humble about it goes home justified. So this is what makes me think maybe we shouldn't be looking for like the moral of the story because we'll just turn being humble into another way to be self-righteous. That's what we do. We are trapped by this parable giving us really only the unlimited generosity of God's grace as the way forward. Because there is a solution to self-justification and all the one-upmanship games we play. It's not trying to be more humble like the tax collector either. I think the solution was for God to be made flesh and walk among us. God's own beloved bragging sinners, all of us. Jesus isn't tapping his foot in heaven waiting to see if we can do the impossible then condemning us for our failure. What we have is a merciful and gracious God who comes to us in vulnerability and suffering, who tells us he's done all that's necessary on our behalf, who tells us there's no extra credit to be obtained 
that all we need is need and all of us are equal in need. God says to us today, I've done everything necessary for you. Pharisees and tax collectors alike. That's a way of saying all of us. God sees us as we are. Every single jealous inclination, every racist thought, every selfish desire, every good deed done for the wrong reason. And God sees all of it through the lens of co-suffering love and says to us, you are free. No one's keeping score. You are already justified. You're already God's new creation. The lavish mercy of God cannot be earned. It can only be received. Confession is the opening up of our empty hands to receive the abundant mercy of God. Which makes it particularly great that today's confession comes after the sermon. So we're all going to get to practice this in just a moment. So God hears the tax collector's prayer, Jesus says. That's the prayer. The prayer that developed in the Christian tradition then goes like this. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. That is called the Jesus prayer. It's said by Christians all over the world. Sometimes in a church service, it's said every single Sunday, depending on the tradition. And some people call it a breath prayer because it is easily memorized and you can pray it under your breath. As you breathe in, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, and as you breathe out, have mercy on me, a sinner. Let's do it right now. When we say it out loud together, or we say it, say it quietly, but focus on the breathing instead. So as you breathe in, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Let us pray. Gracious God, help us to see how eager you are to give us mercy. How eager you are to try to persuade us of just how beloved we are in you. That this is a prayer that you receive with such joy because you are so gracious. And so help us today to believe that, that we might take another step towards a more healthy, authentic life with you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.